0: In John 6, we see one of the great miracles of Christ, where one of the more famous ones. Uh, the Lord is teaching. He has a vibrant teaching ministry. He's been healing. He has a vibrant miracle ministry. He's attracting thousands of people in Judea, in the countryside. Jesus is famous. He is a celebrity pastor, so to speak, uh, with none of the questions of ethical integrity. But he is nonetheless well, well known. And people are going to him. He preaches with authority and he heals with great power. And thousands of people um, have flocked to him in John 6 and is getting late. And there's nothing to eat and so the disciples come to jesus and they say send them home so they can go to villages and get the food they need and jesus says you feed them what do we have and they collect five loaves and two fishes and over the course of a few minutes and more jesus is able to take the five loaves and two fishes and through the power of the lord He's able to multiply them miraculously so that as many as, when you include the women and children, it's probable that as many as 15,000 to 20,000 people are fed. And of course, this blows everyone away. Not only do they get an amazing meal, but Jesus' authority and power is only reinforced to them all. And so rather than having their fill and with um, strength and nourishment heading home, the crowd just stays, and they want more of this. They want more of this person in whom is localized perfect words from God and almighty power from god and and they don't want to go away and and so we what jesus tries to do in the conversation that's going to follow is help them understand that the miracle they've experienced is pointing to a deeper miracle that the the bread and the fish that they've eaten is pointing to spiritual bread that they need and but they keep asking them about food <laughs> they they keep coming back to the food they need and and it's 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 hard for us to maybe um, understand where they were, that would help us get a sense of what was going on in their hearts. you know we have many choices for food. We have many streams of of sources of income you know we we get a paycheck, maybe some of us get a paycheck every two weeks. Uh, we have mortgages that if we have trouble paying them there's going to be months of provision before we get in trouble with the banks um, we have. FRM, Frederick Rescue Mission in town, if we, if we get hungry and have no food, there's a place down the street to go and get breakfast and lunch anytime, all the time, seven days a week, 365 days a year. They had one way to get food, and it was bread and f- fish, what they could get that day. When I say one way, I don't mean that they only ate one thing. I just meant that food was was more immediately... Uh, essential for them, they had no refrigeration <laughs> they had um they had no fast food diners to go to because we have so much, it might be easier to translate what happened to them that day as if Jesus had given them not only bread, but mortgage checks and automobile monthly payments. And he'd handed them phones that they needed for work. And he gave them all health insurance cards. And my point isn't that we really need all those things. It's that Jesus in providing for them with bread in the context of their culture and their society was very close to providing for them everything they could fundamentally think of when they thought of their needs. And so they want to stay with him. And then he begins to appeal to them, listen, I need you to understand what this is really pointing to. There's something much more important here than the bread and the fish I just gave you, as important as that is. And he does this starting in verse 35 when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst And for several verses, he intermingles eating him as the bread and believing in him as savior. He says in verse 33, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is going back and forth between the bread they ate and spiritual life that he provides. Back and forth between the bread they ate and the spiritual life he provides. Verses 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give, for the life of the world, is my flesh. And, and when he says, "And the bread that I will give for the life of the of the world is my flesh," he he lights a match. And we understand that what Jesus has just done is he's, he's taken the bread metaphor and he's moved from bread generally to bread specifically as the giving of his flesh for the life of the world in the cross, his substitutionary atonement for all of their sins. But these people had no concept of what that meant at this point. The disciples fought that idea into Palm Sunday and more. But what Jesus is trying to say is that to eat the bread that is me, to feed on the bread that I will give you, is, he's equating it with believing in him and his work on the cross as the substitutionary atonement, atoner for our sins. But they don't get that, which is very understandable. We're reading this 2,000 years later having been raised in a church, having communion, but they had no understanding of it. And so in verse 52, the Jews dispute among themselves and they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on me, on my flesh, and drinks my blood, remains in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, When many of the disciples of Jesus heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit Who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the father. And then verse 66 says this. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So I want to pick up our passage at verse 52. Just try to unpack it, come to the end with some implications. Jesus says in verse 52 the Jews then disputed among themselves Or rather the scripture says how can this man give us his flesh to eat that's the match that got lit there that that offended and confused they're continuing to think in terms of physical food and physical drink and their inability to comprehend what Jesus is saying is an impediment but what's also an impediment is their inability to give Jesus the benefit of the doubt It's not just that they don't understand, it's that they're making a decision about what they don't understand and they're saying, this is wrong. You see what I'm saying? That something is confusing to them and they decide they don't like it and in their heart they say, because I don't understand this, because I can't agree with this, I'm not going to accept this and they make a decision. Jesus, in a sense, in verse 53, tries to open a window for them. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. So he doesn't run down. He doesn't back down. He doesn't say at this point, look, this is not what I meant, but but he he amplifies and emphasizes the stakes. Drinking my blood, eating my flesh is an absolute necessity for you, he basically says. You have to do this. He states it negatively as well. Unless you do this, you have no life in here. No life in you. Now, f- for old covenant Jewish people the whole idea of of eating food eating meat with blood in it eating flesh that was bloody was forbidden not to mention the idea of eating a person was horrifying but Jesus says his flesh and blood are true food and true drink what does food do? it keeps us alive it keeps our bodies alive and of course, looking back 2,000 years later, we know that Jesus' flesh and blood will keep our bodies alive too. Our glorified physical bodies at the resurrection are part of the whole complex of Jesus' salvation. But Jesus answers their confusion, not at first with explanations, but, but amplified assertions of His importance. He raises the stakes, so to speak, of what he's saying. He's not just saying something that's disturbing and hard, but then he says, Your eternal life depends on, on, you, on you doing this. Like, they're offended that he's saying, Ew, You know, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they're like, Ew. And Jesus says, Don't you, you really, really need this. Like, I, I'm not going to kid you. I'm not going to soften this. Not only this is this hard for you to understand, but if you don't get this, if you don't receive this, you're going to have eternal death. These are unapologetic claims. They, they, they appeal to our, our greatest hopes. They appeal to our greatest fears. Jesus is saying that heaven and hell lie in his hands. He's not apologizing for this. He's turning it up to 11. He's telling them, stake everything in your life on this. You have to have me. He's not trying to make this PC. He's not trying to make this nice and comfortable. I'm not saying that's wrong but that's not what he's doing. He is he's making this difficult, but he's trying to make them feel the weight of it. But it's very hard for them to get this. In verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it they say this is a hard saying who can listen to it. They don't like what they under- don't understand and they're offended. And again, I want you to notice, it's not just the Jewish leaders who are offended. It's his disciples. And this is probably referring to more than the 12. This is probably referring to many of the disciples. Many people at this point are following around. around. I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but they're kind of band groupies, like a, a band like the Grateful Dead will go from little town to little town and these groups of people will follow them through the tour and they'll stay with him. And at this point, Jesus has picked up a lot of people who are staying with him from town to town. But this day they're hearing something that's going to end the tour for them. He's gone too far. He is claiming to be the exclusive center, source, and sustainer of eternal life. He alone. He is claiming to have the same life in himself that Yahweh does and to be the exclusive source of Yahweh's life for all people. And then, of course, as we've talked about, for their... Jewish sensibilities, he has spoken graphically and disturbingly and confusingly about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. So, for anyone who doesn't understand at this point the spiritual meaning of what Jesus is saying, for anyone who can't grasp that these are metaphors for faith and for eternal life, <clears throat> they have only two choices. They can either ask Jesus, What do you mean? Will you please help us understand? I am really struggling with what you're saying. Can you please help me? Or they can say this is this price is too high. I'm done with this guy. It's too high. It's too weird. It doesn't fit with my conceptions. It's look at other people are really upset by this. And it's weird like it just crossed the line and they reject and abandon that, those are the two choices ask and wait for an explanation because understanding this well is probably not an option for many of them if any of them so they can either ask and wait for an explanation or they can reject and abandon him But Jesus, by the way, the implication here is no one's coming to him and asking him. Verse 61, it says, Jesus knowing in himself that they were grumbling about this. In other words, they're, they're crumbling themselves. They're not coming to Jesus for help. They're just complaining among themselves. But he knew it. And so he goes to them at this point and he says, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to what he, where he was before? See, what's so interesting here is Jesus isn't saying, let me explain to you. What I mean, he says, what if you understood who I really was? This stuff that you can't understand, that you're going to bail on me about? As opposed to him saying, let me explain it to you perfectly. He says, what if you just knew who I was? A lot of times in our lives, it, it's not answers from God that we most crucially need. It, it's, it's, an, it's just an understanding that he is God, that he is God. So Jesus is essentially saying, listen, are you going to let what is hard for you to understand drive you away from me? Don't you know what's at stake? Don't you know who I am? What if you saw me as I have been for all eternity, enthroned in heaven, one with the Father? That would give you some incentive to wait on your confusion, wouldn't it, in this hard place? You would be very inclined to be patient and stay with me. If you could only understand who I really am. And then he goes on and he he starts to open up things for them a little bit further. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit. These are spiritual words. He's offering a bit of an escape. In other words, what I'm talking to you about are spiritual realities. The flesh counts for nothing. I'm not talking about drinking my blood in an earthly way, but in a spiritual way. You can't get eternal life from eating material bread. That's my whole point. You need spiritual bread. In verse 64, he says, knowing what's coming, that there's a desertion coming. He says that some of you do not believe. They were his disciples, they were following him, but he knew there was a crucial element missing. They didn't trust him. At the core, there was a crucial element missing. For whatever reason they were following Jesus' interest, curiosity, excitement, there was this basic element of trust missing. And when push came to shove, when things get hard, because the basic element of trust was gone, they bail. And Jesus says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In order to stay with me, you need a Holy Spirit infusion from outside of you to give you the power to trust me and stay with me. My mom used to say this thing to those who believe no explanation is necessary. To the one who does not believe, no explanation is possible. That's a little bit simplistic. You know, we, we, we don't live on those binary ones and zeros all the time. There's a continuum. And on that continuum is, is doubt and, and less doubt. Faith and less faith. But there's an element of truth to that at the end of the day. It, it, the biggest issue for these disciples was not a lack of understanding and theological clarity about what flesh and blood meant it was that they did not really trust him. When you really trust someone you're following, you can bear up under a lot of what you don't understand. When you really trust someone, you can wait through a lot of confusion and a lot of difficulty. And they didn't have that. And the desertion must have hurt the Lord's heart, but in verse 65, he sets his mind on the sovereignty of the Father. No one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Jesus is reminding himself that his Father is in control, even as desertion, probably to a great degree, begins to happen. And this brings us to a... a, a, a parallel but, but uncomfortable truth that the people left because God was allowing them to do what their hearts wanted to do. People were leaving because God was letting them do what they wanted to do as opposed to keeping them through the power of his Holy Spirit. There were some people that God let go and there were some people that God did not let go. How frightening and sobering is that? We'll come back to that in a bit. I don't mean to be terse, but we will come back to that. So Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? I I think there's a real hurting heart in Jesus. It was possible for the Lord to be a man of sorrows in many opportunities in his ministry. And this had to have been one, seeing people that he'd preached to, fed nourished taught maybe some for a long time maybe some for months maybe even for years and they're leaving and he says to the 12 do you want to go away as well and Simon Peter Simon's not always the the citizen of the month <laughs> you know in the bible he gets a lot of he gets a lot of grief for issues and thank God because we empathize we relate to Simon we see Jesus patience with him and we we're encouraged but he shines here Simon says Lord Simon Peter says Lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the holy one of God look at what Peter doesn't say he doesn't say no 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 I'm okay I, I know what you meant Drink your blood, eat your flesh, the cross, I got it. You know, communion, substantiation, you know, real presence, symbol, sacrament. I I, I know what they're going to argue about, but I got it. I figured it all out. I'm okay. No, he he just says, I think implicitly, this is, it's not written in the text, so this is my conjecture right here. I, I think Peter doesn't understand what Jesus means just like everybody else. Because Peter doesn't go to explanation. He goes to who Jesus is and he says, where else are we going to go? Are you confusing me right now? Absolutely. What am I going to do? Go somewhere else now? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. What options do I have? Like to leave you because I'm troubled and I'm really confused and I don't get this? So what, a, but you're God. So what am I going to do? Like, where am I going to go? I trust you. I'm completely, Peter might've felt completely confused, even disgusted by what Jesus says. But he is like, I, I know that what repels me about this, there, there must be an explanation. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to wait because I trust you. I already know who you are. And Jesus brings God's sovereignty back into it. He says, did I not choose you? That's my boy. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke of Judas the Simon, Judas Simon of Iscariot who would betray him. So Peter is staying because he knows who Jesus is, and Peter knows who Jesus is because Jesus is being faithful to Peter, to keep him faithful to Jesus. As he said in an earlier chapter, all the Father gives me will come to me, and those who come I will be no, by no means drive away, for this is my Father's will, that I lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And the more sobering side in this little pericope, this passage, is that God's, in God's sovereignty, Jesus knows that Judas will live out Satan's character and God will not prevent Judas from doing that, but he will use what Judas is going to do to make Jesus flesh and blood, real food and real drink that brings eternal life. So one big application from this is that God is in control of all things. And we're called to rest in him. God is in control of all things and we're called to rest in him. Maybe more immediately to this text. Don't let what you cannot understand move you from devotion to Christ. In your temptation and trial and trouble... Ask Jesus' question of yourself. What if you saw me ascend to where I truly am? What if you saw me ascended and seated above every trial and temptation and circumstance of your life? Every controversy on this earth? Every argument with your spouse? Every argument in the marketplace? Every argument on blogs about who God should be? What the world should be like? What if you saw me ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father? Life in this world often do not make sense. We often do not want what we get. We often do not see what we want for others or even what we want for God. Some of us are struggling to pay bills. Some of us are struggling in our marriages. Some of us are struggling in our parenting. Some of us are struggling in our being parented. Some of us are struggling at work. I mean, you know, fill in the blanks with wherever it is for you, but... All of us have struggles. All of us have questions. And Jesus dealt with those struggles, not by explaining them away, not by making them understand things perfectly, but by appealing to himself as the source and sustainer and controller of all things. Even, Jesus reminds us that even in, in Judas's betrayal, God is at work in control or that wherever Satan is at work, God is using him for his own purposes. God never promised us earthly, comfortable circumstances. In fact, he promises us trouble. If we really want to follow him, he promises persecution. But he also promised that he's sovereign over all these things that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. He promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. He promised that no temptation would be so great that we would have to leave him like these disciples did. He promised that he would provide a way out. He promised that upon any confession of our stumbling, he forgives and cleanses. If we set our hearts at the core on this world, on its circumstances, on its acceptance, on its successes, we risk a hardness against God. But if we set our hearts on his faithfulness despite our circumstances, we will find the ability that Peter had to say, no matter what the confusion was, Where else am I gonna go? You're the one. This is hard, but you're the one. I hate this, but you're the one. A beautiful song by a man who struggled terribly, William Cowper, with mental illness. He had terrible bouts of depression throughout his life. He was often a miserable, miserable person. Even as a believer, his pain was immense in mental health anguish. And he wrote these words O fearful saints, new courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Jesus told Peter that he'd chosen him. Sometime later, that choice and its vulnerability will be shown to Peter. This is a famous story for for me, maybe for us, because I've spoken about it a lot. In the Last Supper, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. In other words, Peter, you're going to deny that you know me. What's going on right now is you're being put on the judgment seat. And Satan is wanting to pull you away from me forever. And his answer is, but I have prayed for you. His answer isn't, you're not going to blow it. No, Peter, you are going to blow it. His answer isn't, your faith is too strong tonight, buddy. No, his faith is not strong tonight. He's going to blow it, major. He's going to abandon Jesus. He's going to sell out for what's comfortable and safe. He's going to lie and deny the Lord. What Jesus says to Peter is I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith ultimately will not fail. Our faith rests on his faithfulness. Our salvation doesn't rest on our ability, but on God's mercy. And praise be to God, he will have mercy. This is one of the reasons why Jen and I's wedding verse for our marriage but for our whole lives was Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. i had come to the place where I didn't have a lot of hope in myself to be a faithful good husband. But I had faith in God that he could help me. And that's where I wanted my faith centered. In his faithfulness, not my own. This need for God's mercy as the definitive factor in salvation is true for you and it's true for me. But it's no less true for those who don't know Christ around us, our loved ones, our friends, our neighbors. We have to continue to come back to the fact that it is God who finally makes the change who finally allows people to come to him and stay with him. Did I not choose you, the 12? We cannot regenerate people. We can't regenerate our kids, our sons, our daughters, our parents, our friends, our coworkers, but we can plead with the one who can. We can keep coming to him again and again and asking him to save. And when a good opportunity arises to speak of our hope in Christ with gentleness and respect, we can offer the truth. Last application is, is feed on Jesus. Feed on Jesus. He is the source of our eternal life. How real is Jesus to you? How important is he to you and me? As real as food and drink. More essential than dinner and breakfast and lunch and water. And he wants us to feel that vitalness each day. So he calls us to feed on him. And feeding on him is not an option. I mean, I think that was latent in what Pam was saying and what Cameron was saying. We have to feed on him. And and salvation is a gift. It lasts eternally. If you are saved, you are saved. I believe the Bible teaches that. But one of the results in salvation is that we're not just robots who just say, oh, Jesus has forgiven me, I'm good, I'll just go on my way. It creates in us, a heart to persevere and we're called to steward that, to cooperate with that. It's kind of getting back to what Pam said today. We live in, in the reality of these tensions in the Bible where, where we're called believers saved forever. And we're also called to keep believing forever. And it's through the gift of, how do I put this? When God changes you and gives you a new heart, he gives you power to persevere in following him. And he uses the power that you operate, that you activate to keep you following him. Hebrews 2, 3 says this, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The author of Hebrews says in another place, we are his house if we hold firmly to the end our confidence in him. I don't want to get lost in a performance here of of, of preaching perfectly. I, I need to pray for a moment if you guys don't mind. Right now we're seeing much of our entire nation harden its heart To God in a way that I've never seen before there's not just a inclination to not want to follow God that that's kind of always been there there's not just a a a polite allowance for the gospel to sit at the table but yes thanks but no thanks kind of attitude that's always been there there is a growing militancy and hatred of the things of God that's overtaking our culture. And many people who are professing Christians, famous believers, are going through what's popularly being called deconstruction. Some of that might be good as people are reevaluating the things that are essential about faith and strengthening things that are needed and letting go of things that aren't needed. But a lot of it is also not good. Where, where people are saying with these disciples, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? What what the Bible and, the, and Jesus teach about eternal damnation, that is a hard saying. Uh, who can take it? What, what they're saying about the necessity of needing to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive it in order to be saved, that's a hard saying. Who can accept it? What, what the Bible is calling sexual purity with regards to same-sex attraction and same-sex marriage and transgenderism, that's a hard saying. Who can accept it? The, I'm leaving. And if you've been a believer long enough, you've probably seen some of your friends do this or go through this. And so what I want to both encourage you but exhort you with today is this. Yes, we are kept by God. We are kept by God, but we are not to be idle in his keeping of us. That's why the author of Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. I don't want to drift away. I don't want you to read about me on Twitter in a a few years. Ex-evangelical and I've found a greater love and peace than I've ever known before because this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? And I don't want that to happen to you. But I think in large measure, brothers and sisters, it is going to come calling for you. That is the spirit of our age and it is going to come calling for you and you're going to have to invest in God's word and why you really believe it or if you really do, you're going to have to pay closer attention to what we have heard so that you don't drift away. Because God is not fooling around. Jesus Christ is not optional. He does not offer us an optional salvation from him. That's why the author of Hebrews goes on and says, For if the message spoken through angels, speaking of the old covenant, proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received its just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So I want to appeal to you to pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to his word. And specifically, I want to appeal to you to pay attention to him, especially where he locates himself in this passage as the one who gave his flesh as real food for us and blood as real drink. You know, this, this church was l- largely founded as a church that plants its feet firmly in the belief that, that our pursuit of God, our, our paying closer attention, our pursuing holiness, that that must be rooted in the gospel of grace, that we had to keep the grace of God and the necessity of what Christ has done for us central lest we become discouraged or proud in the battle. That idea really changed my life. It's probably why I ever came to this church, wound up at this church. So there's kind of an irony here. In, In the warnings that I'm kind of giving you, I think it's essential to keep the good news as really good news centrally. And I I love the way that Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon summed this up in a passage. He said, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. Remember, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness, he means ultimate happiness, by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is and not what we are that gives rest to the soul. But it takes an intentionality to keep looking at Jesus. we don't drift towards holiness we don't drift towards devotion to jesus it takes an intentionality and and miraculous life spiritual life with eternal implications are are played out every day in your simple acts of faithfulness to Jesus in simple quiet times where you feed on scripture in moments of planned or unplanned prayer where you run to God in your heart instead of running to an escape or to hopelessness where you gather to worship God with his people like this or times with one another to care for each other's souls these are the what what Jeremiah 6 calls the ancient pathways. Sometimes they can feel too ordinary to us and we feel like we got we got to get some extra super duper spiritual thing from some other source. I, I I often run into a time of fellowship to meet with people with some sense of tiredness and weariness. My heart can say, I'd rather be doing something else. But I often leave refreshed beyond my expectations because God's done something that I didn't do in that meeting. I often move into a time of prayer with a sense of heaviness or a sense of I'd rather be doing something else or a sense of a thousand things that are pressing in on me. But I often leave with a sense of eternal food that's fed my own soul, even as I've sought to pray for others. I very often walk into evangelistic opportunities with a great amount of fear and awkwardness. But I can't recall one person that I regret sharing my faith with. And I often feel that I've, I've gotten out of trying to give more than I've given from the Lord. So prayer, scripture, fellowship, giving of our time, our talents, our treasure for the purposes of God. These aren't super exciting and super glamorous, but they're the means by which God sustains our soul as we continue feasting on Jesus. And we can't long neglect these things without at some point following Jesus a little farther back and finding his words a little harder to hear. In Jeremiah 6, the Lord says to Israel, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet." Pay attention to what you've been told, lest you drift away. But they said, We will not pay attention. (laughs) Therefore, O hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. Brothers and sisters, let us be a people who walk the ancient paths, who stay on the ancient paths, who pay attention to God's words to us and who find rest for our souls. Let's not become those who say, this is too hard. Who can bear this? We're leaving. Let's stay close. Let's keep feeding on him. Let's keep our eyes on his words. Let's keep our hand on each other to keep following him. Let's keep our hearts in prayer, looking to him for help. Day after day after day, doing those what feel like boring, ordinary things, but but seeking to do them, seeking to be faithful.